next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. If we were to say, we got all the oil money and just split it among everybody, all the government would owe you is 7,000 dollars. If we're ever going to take off as an economy, it's not just oil. My guest today is Tola Onoyemi. He's SA on industry, trade, and investment, and also sits in the economic team in the office of the vice president. I'm quite impressed with what Tola has done so far, actually. I'm also more impressed with what he's doing now with regards to being involved in the ease of doing business, um, because most people know about the difficulty that entrepreneurs face in Africa generally, not just Nigeria, with regards to starting and running their business. So um, I've got Tola here today. Uh, Tola, welcome to Build in the Future. Thank you very much, Dotson. Thank you very much. So Tola, first of all, let's start with your background. What led you here to you at a relatively young age, maybe, you're working with the government. You could be working in a consultant. You could be working elsewhere. What led you to this place? All right, so I think a good background to start with what exactly it is that I do, and then I'll devolve quickly into um, what exactly it is that, and how I got here. So more specifically, um, I'm in the economic team of the Office of the Vice President on the Industry Trade Investment Cluster. I, I'm an Industry Trade and Investment, meaning I provide technical policy assistance on issues of industry trade and investment. Industry in the sense of the entire gamut of non-oil sector policies to help the non-oil sector take off. So textile, automobile, and all that. Trade, so things like trade negotiations, um, trade policy reviews, and just setting the interest trade policy agenda and priorities. Then investment also, so trade and um, investment policies and all that. The team is headed by the Senior Special Assistant to the President of the Industry and Investment. But that's the gamut of work we do. And it's also crystallized into the more specific two roles of the ease of doing business effort by the government through the setup of the Presidential Enabling Business Environment Council, um, as well as the recent setup of the Nigerian Office for Trade Negotiations, both things that I'm involved in. So how did I get here? I like to say it's... Um, Someone said we should stop saying things like it's God. So <laughs> just give people the details, right? So, but the thing is, I think it's a lot of just having people who believed in me and just gave me a platform to start upon. Um, to a great extent. So I finished university. I finished the first class. Um, in law. which university? Yeah, um, University of Lagos, actually, for my first degree, first class in law. And um, right after that, I'd done a almost like a research fellowship with a certain professor, Professor Oyewa. And yeah, just first admonished me, I applied for your master's, you know, I applied to Cambridge. I'm like, yeah, I'll think about it. So I ran into this woman at the Kuramu conference where I was rapporteuring some days after Dr. Oduwale. And she just said, you know what, you should apply to this, the, to Cambridge. And I think it was a week to the close of the deadline. So I applied, right? And before then, I'd done some work in the past with some law firm doing transactions work. I'd done some work in the past with even Citibank. So I applied. I got into Cambridge with a scholarship and all that, did that. And then, and that was where it was interesting because I went with an open mind. I just went to do a master's. There wasn't any clear idea of where I wanted to end up doing, like what specific areas and all that. So in Cambridge, I I had this professor who, in Ingress Ruskan, who was doing some work along the issues of cross-tallation in trade. And he just advised me and said, you know what, you should totally write a research in this area. And, and, and then we got talking, we got, became, and then 
I'd gone open, I was going to do a master's in transactional corporate law. And then I started moving into things like international economic law, international economic trade. And I just got really interested in it about how developing countries to take off using their trade policies, being very strategic about their investment. Was that your, uh, was that a thesis that you were doing? So yeah, in, I wrote a thesis. So I, I did a number of coursework also, but I did a thesis, actually a full blown thesis on, um, and it was, it was more or less, Tied into something. So around that time, Antigua and Barbuda had won an award against the US, about $210 million. Um, Who has won an award? Antigua and Barbuda, the country. Antigua and Barbuda, the country. So $210 million. And then I had to structure out a way for them to operationalize it. Because the question is, Antigua and Barbuda is just 0.04% of the US economy. So the truth is, that's not even, it has no impact on the US economy in a sense. And so the idea is, how do we carefully structure a retaliation policy that ensures that the US takes notice. Were you consulting for Antigua and Barbuda? Barbuda? No, not in the clearest of terms, right? So the idea was, there was already a problem. And the idea was, I was in an academic background, using that as a background to operationalize that award, basically. And so what I did at that point was, helped structure all that in the sense of, okay, this is the sector the US cares the most about. And just using my sense of what trade and investment, and, and that's why I got all interested in it. Right after that, I moved to do some work with the Organization of the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons in the Netherlands and the Office of Legal Advice. And it was very interesting also doing work along the lines of helping structure the destruction of serious chemical weapons stockpile. And it was just, it was a lot of fun. I'd, was that an internship? Or? Um, so what had happened more specifically is there's a um, person, Dr. Olufemi Elias, and I think is one of the most abstitute and the highest level Nigerians in international organization in the world. He at that point was the I think was the right word. Well, at that point was the legal advisor for the organization of the provision of chemical weapons. And so what happened generally was that he had invited me to say, you know, you could this this is an opportunity. I've done all the application and I joined. And what I loved about the team was a very small team and there was a lot of hands-on experience. We're working in, in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, the Hague. It was a lot of hands-on experience, doing a lot of structuring, doing a lot of... And it was really, it was a lot of fun. I understand how international international politics work, what they call real politics. And it was really good. And so it was just a build-up for me. I haven't done some. So it was a build-up of a background in international economic law, understanding how, in the end, countries care a lot about their international significance and all. As I went on, and, and I kept doing research work and adv- advisory work on economic development for countries and all that, I'd, I'd done a number of them. I also was presenting a number of papers at the Affiliate Conference, African Institute for International Law, a number of those kind of, so I'd, I built quite an academic repute for, for that. Because what you find out is a lot of, it's very predictive work. It's more, um, what will the economy look like in the next 10 years? Well, what should we be doing now? So it's a lot of predictive modeling and all that. And so what happened afterwards was, when the team was being set up with the economic team, I was invited, you want to be a part of this? And, and at that point, the question for me was simple, was, yes, you get, you probably could get comfortable in the, in the Netherlands and you probably could build an easy life in an international organization, but you don't get an opportunity every time in your life to be part of crafting the policy for your country at that level. And I think that for me was the appeal, was the, it was a massive appeal too. And so it wasn't, an, it wasn't, it was a no brainer for me. It was, a, it wasn't easy. Is the economic team, um, directly advising the president or the office of the vice president? So the first thing you have to know is that the president has the power to delegate some powers um, to specific officers. Economic affairs, to a great extent, is delegated to the vice president because the vice president heads the economic management team. So to a great extent, economic policies is within the purview of the vice president's office. And so the economic team actually directly advised the entire president because that, and the economic management team is not just the vice president. It's actually made up of the vice president. There are a number of key ministers who are involved in the economic team. Is it similar to the economic team that was set up by President Obasanjo? That so had, that is the same thing that continued. That is the same thing. That, that had Mrs. Obi, um, Nasir Rufa. So uh, that was more of a coordinating, coordinating. But what's happened is, that, yes, Obasanjo did set up an economic management team. And that's, and the president administration has continued in that same tradition of just having, 
a central clearinghouse for all economic decisions. So people, people like Nigeria, the, the head of Nigerian Bureau of Statistics is in, in part of is part of it, the Minister of Industry and Investment, uh, the Minister of Finance, a number of people who play very active roles in the discourse about the Nigerian economic space actually in that room. Because it's, it's supposed to be the highest um, policy f- um, setting frame um, f- mechanism within the government for economic policy decision making. And so you are invited to be part of that team? No, so, there's, so there is an economic team Okay. Outside of that, that's the economic management team. But the, okay. vice, the vice president himself has an economic team, which is headed by the uh, special advisor to the president of economic affairs, Mr. Mabuza um, Yemitik Baolu. So I was invited to be part of that team, which does more of the substantive crunching. Um, these guys make decisions, but then there's a, there's a back-end work that needs to be done. But there is an operational part of it that needs to be exactly. done. Exactly. There's all policy that needs to be so done. So what is your day-to-day role like? That is, that's interesting. Uh, the day-to-day is as... I'm a force as the work that needs to be done. So yes, we've got a clear work plan, right? And we've got clear work streams. And for us, our clear work stream were in four major things. One was business climate reforms. And the second was trade and investment policy support with, in condition of the Ministry of Industry and Investment, just supporting their work. The top, third part was trade and investment policy, setting trade and investment policy more particularly, right? And the fourth part was stakeholder engagement, just able to engage with the key players in that field and all that. There's a fifth part which we haven't really put forward was the national quality infrastructure. But that has seemingly taken the back burner for a while because of we're trying to sort out a number of other front burner issues. So that, that's what the work plan is supposed to look at. And that is distilled into a clear action plan and that's a day-to-day. But of course, because of the nature of economic affairs, things are always going to throw up in every moment. So for instance, you could find out, you know what, um, the, the cotton and textile industry is getting short change. What exactly is the problem? Or we're having a massive tomato shortage or we we can't even take off on our domestic production of our tomatoes or there's a rice production issue or, or the automobile policy needs a review. So there's a day-to-day things that comes into your table that, yes, you could tie it into that work, but it's not particularly part of your work. You still have to sort it out. There. And the vice president also runs an open office. What it means is that generally if you write any letter to him, he actually clears it. So what it means to a great extent is that letters, there are a number of letters that come from people saying, I'm querying this, I don't agree with this. And then it's minuted so on to the deputy chief of staff and then that has to be treated. So there is... Okay, wait, tell me about that. So... I can write a letter to the vice president and say, I don't agree with this economic policy on so, so, and so. And the vice president is going to... The, the office will respond. Yes. Will respond to will me respond, yeah. as, a citizen. as a citizen. And that is a great choice. Sometimes it gets uh, stressed because you get a number of documents. from, And it always gets minuted on my deputy chief of staff, this person. And what happens when document comes in, it almost goes to the stream that's involved. So some goes to industrial investment cluster. Some goes to the economic advice. And some goes to the rule of law advice. So the number, it just it's almost like a, a clockwork redistribution of work. And so there's that part. There's all that economic issues that come up that you have to advise on a day-to-day, on a day-to-day. And then there's a work stream. And so what we try to do to manage all that is to have a clear work plan. And then we have check-in meetings regular every week just so that we're not dropping the ball on any of those things. So, and yeah, and we do a lot of um, work with the Ministry of Industry and Investment, the Minister, the Chief Trade Advisor to the Minister, and just helping support the work that's happening there also. The Minister of Industry and Investment in this case, yeah. So you work directly with the Minister as well? On- yes, it's, uh, yeah. so what my cluster does to a great extent is Act as that strong liaison between the so yes, the, just to ensure that the presidency and the ministry is on the same when the same speed dial on everything, uh, on every and but of course a great chunk of implementation work would lie with the ministry because it's implementing them of government. But yeah, but there's that there's a strong nexus between the work that is done on both sides. So tell me about what you're currently doing now with regards to the ease of doing business, and I think that's very interesting to most people that will be listening to this podcast and people in this room now listening to it live, which is 
What are the policy framework that you're putting in place or that you envision your work will help with, with regards to helping entrepreneurs to start and run their business in Nigeria? Um, we all know, we all agree that starting a business in Africa or in Nigeria is hard. And part of the things that you're trying to do is to reduce that barrier of entry. So can you tell me in a more clear terms, what are the key policy framework that you're putting in place and the reform the government is doing now and the changes that we'll be expecting to see happen with regards to doing and running business? All right. Thank you very much, Dr. So uh, before I answer any of those questions, I'd like, just like to do something very comical. If you could, if you could all grab your phones and just let's just do a math together, right? And maybe that'll give you the, a sense of why this is a very important conversation. So the way it works is, and everybody shouts oil money, and everybody talks about it a lot, right? So let's imagine the oil companies don't take out any, because the, the way it works is, it's usually it's a joint, it's a profit sharing contract. So the oil company takes a great part of it, some part of the profit, and also nets up of their expense. But let's imagine they don't take it. So at best, the interest production capacity is two point two million barrel per liter, right? So let's do that. Two two. If you multiply it by $50, which is the highest at recent time. So let's put it by $50. That's Sorry, 2.2 million barrels per day, not per, per day. Yeah, per day. Per day, okay. Times okay. $50, that's okay. about 110... 110 million. Million, right? Million. Multiply by 365 days, right? That's this. That's 4, 4, tri- 4 trillion. Divided by the interest population, which is about 180 million people now. So... That brings us to 223 naira. So everybody deserves 223 dollars a year from the government if you're going to just split that money let's do that and then divide that by 12 months so let's multiply by what is the naira today 380 so what it means is that actually every month all the government if we were to say we got all the oil money and just split it among everybody all the government would owe you is seven thousand naira per month so what that means to a great extent is the place of oil in our economy is overstated to a great extent in the sense that oil won't take us to the promised land and we all have to face that reality as it stands. That's just 7,000 naira. What, like, 7,000 naira is your pizza that most of you have in a day. And that's the end of the month. Okay, before we go on, can I stop you a bit there that, yes, that math looks uh, legit and good. But then we've all seen the disproportionate distribution of that oil money to a very, very small percentage so, of so, people. And I, 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 I agree with you. So Nigeria, for instance, needs, I think, about 300 billion over the next few years to just catch up in a structure-wise with South Africa. So the truth of the matter is, in the scheme of things, even all that money won't do much good. And that's why for the government, ease of doing business reform was a massive legacy project. Because for them, it's a, listen, if we're ever going to take off as an economy, it's not just oil. It's that the entire economy must take off. By that, the SMEs must. And so the entire ease of doing business project is actually targeted more as the SMEs, not even particularly the big business that already have access to government, but the small and medium enterprises, the tech premiers, you know, just ensuring that these guys can take up automatically. We started this work at the beginning of 2016, and a number of it was scoping, you know, just finding out what exactly it is, what's, what can be done in the quick point, what can be done in the short term, what can be done in the medium term. And then what had happened next was that around quarter four of 2016, the president approved what the Presidential Enabling Business Development Council and his secretariat, which is the Enabling Business Development Secretariat. And the cost, the, the, the game plan was this, to progressively and sustainably make Nigeria an easier place to do business. That's, that's what it was. And the idea was, we've got this reputation, and it's both reputation and reality, in the sense that we just see that it's hard to do business in Nigeria. So the question is, what can we do in the short term to just make it easier to do business in Nigeria? So what we had done first was what we had called quick wins. What can we do in the shortest possible time? The reason was two things. One was, one is let's get a conversation started on this. But two also is you find that change and reform is a momentum. If you gain a momentum on it, it's easier to push harder reforms. So around February 21 of this year, the 
there's an expanded meeting of that council where the National Assembly leadership, the Senate President, the Speaker, will join that meeting. And then there was a launch of what we call the National Action Plan, the 60-day Action Plan, which purpose was just to deal with what could be done the quick win in seven reform areas, starting a business, paying taxes, um, dealing with construction permit, registering property, getting credit, getting electricity, and enter an exit of people. And that's seven of them. And what happened after that was we did that quick win and just pursued a, it was more like a spring, a sprint, to get some short-term things done in that period of time. And a lot of things were done. For instance, CAC, for instance. Now, there's a CAC portal. You can do start to finish registration online with CAC portal. And That's the Corporate Affairs Commission. Commission. Even downtime, one of the things we did was we had them collocate their servers from actually their in-house servers to actually main one servers. So now the CAC is actually hosted on the main one server. Just to show that there's 99% uptime. And one of the things we did was, it's not just you'd start the process and go off. You can, it's a, start to finish digitized process it's next next step. all your documents you have to do you scan and upload them and the idea is that you can get it in 24 hours because the idea is you can't get people to move from the informal sector to the formal sector except there is a system of and i'm thinking of the right words now it's a system where i can easily register my company okay so is the gap that because i know nigerians are very entrepreneur that's the that's one of the first thing that you see when you come to nigeria so is the gap that there are lots of people who are doing informal business and you want to move them to the formal sector so that they can have a footprint in the economy so that's the first part of it right because okay. all our maths is actually more of the formal sector not right. very few but that's part of it but the idea is and you think that it's a big black hole that you couldn't capture well that's true but to be honest it's even, even more simplistic whenever you come to an idea Whenever you come to a new idea of doing something, it's it's almost endorphin. It's part of your brain. One of the first things you want to do is to say, you know what? Let me own it and give it a name. That's one of the first things you want to do. Create a structure for it. And one of the easiest ways to do that is just start up a start a company. And truth is, and there's actually strong correlation between the fact that countries that where it's easier to start a business, there are actually more entrepreneurial activities in those countries. So the idea is, once the idea comes to me, I should be able to just sit on my laptop wherever I am, set up my computer, and just register the company. With that much ease. Okay. So, so that's that, so that's one of it. That's the that's part of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the one we said that the other part of it is to be able to actually validate your business idea exactly quickly exactly. and then know whether it's working or not without be, before registering it. Definitely. And the third part also is also the fact that to a great extent, for most for, and, and my background is a, is in law and I do a lot of work with like legal tech startups. What you find out also is that we bled a lot in recent time with tech startups that have taken off, and because we're set up in the US, all the tax liabilities will go to the US. That's one. But beyond even that, in the more clearer term. It's also the fact that when you think of it in, in any sense of the word, to interact with people, for them to trust me, it's always best if I'm dealing with a company rather than an individual. So there's not all that conversation for entrepreneurs. And there's also the paying taxes reform, things that now you can file your taxes online on the e-planning platform. For instance, one thing you should know is the, the stamp duties of gov.ng, where you can actually pay any of your stamp duties by just logging on stamp duties of gov.ng, pick up what you want to pay tax and pay right there and there with your card. So there's a number of those things just making life easier for you. So another thing that we had also done was with registering proper MD question permits in Lagos, where there's now an implanting platform, the LagosEPP.com.ng, where you can pretty much upload all your question permit application documents and track it online. Right. Uh, upload what? For co- applying for custom permit in Lagos. Okay. Just, so we worked also with the Lagos State Government, and I'll give them kudos for that. Platform is now live, the Lagos um, EPP.com.ng. Uh, so they're piloting that in Lagos. Pilot, well, it's not so you, you realize that it's a federal structure, so states have to push down reform. So we worked with Lagos specifically, getting them to take some of this because a great chunk of commercial activities happens in Lagos, whether they want to or not. So now what they said is now they're no longer taking manual applications anymore. All the applications have to be online. So if you're applying for custom permit in Lagos, the idea is you should do it online. Go lagos.com.ng, um, you upload your documents and apply and track. So we also did some work with registration property, eliminating the issue of need for sworn affidavit. So then generally, when you want to search for any land title, you have to go to a got to get sworn affidavit. The question is, what do I need a sworn affidavit for? 
to eliminate that. So the number of things we've done, a great part also with entry and exit of people, the operationalizing the visa and arrival process, where now there's an email address, you you do your application document, scan it, and within 12 hours, you're supposed to get, you'll get a response for a visa and arrival. To get a visa. A visa and arrival. Uh, so l- l- let's, let's pause a bit on that because that is close to home for me. Whenever I'm organizing a conference and I'm trying to get speakers to Nigeria, one of the most difficult bits is getting a visa. It's hard to get a visa to come to Nigeria. And what you're doing, is that isn't that up? Definitely. So what is done basically is created a timeline period. Because one of the issues used to be timelines. I wouldn't get a response. I wouldn't know whether my visa was approved or not. As so what we've done is, is, an, is a dedicated email address and it's on the immigration.gov.ng. Just search for visa on arrival. It's all the process is actually detailed out there. What you do is you, your application for a visa, you send it to them and they respond within 12 hours with an approval letter. And with that approval letter, you pay the fees that need to be paid and then you just come straight to the country, basically. And in fact, just yesterday, I, I know about six, seven, eight foreign investors, venture capitalists that actually flew into the country using this process. So it's... Is that bypassing some of the logjam that you have in the Nigerian embassies all across the world? De- well, definitely. Of course, there are two systems to it. You can actually do the good old-fashioned visa process, which we also worked on with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Because now what we've done is there's been a secular issued from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, creating a timeline with which they must respond to visa applications. But you know, beyond applying for visas through your embassies abroad, you could also just get apply for visa on arrival. Actually, in the clearest terms, in legal terms, it's actually called a prioritization visa. Because it's not really I just climb on the plane and I land there. It's that I ask for authorization to actually get a visa when I arrive. So basically, so there's all that also being done. And as once you arrive, you just show them your document. They take you to the visa office. You get a visa and you leave almost immediately. So there's all that also being done. And so you notice if you go to the Abuja airport, you see that there are a number of labelings. Your your wings are here. This so just even giving information where necessary. So the idea is just make the travel experience better for people generally. So we've also done something with goods issues like palletization of goods because one of the problems that used to happen with goods in the past was I'm shipping things down, but they come in a container. Everybody just throws everything in the container and it's truck and it's hard to even do any inspection when those come. So the idea is that. There's been a secular pass that says you must palletize your goods, meaning you must put them in pallets when you're bringing them down to the country. We cut down the documentation for import and exports on both sides. So we eliminated some things that you were not, we didn't think were necessary anymore. I think we cut down one from 10 to 7, we cut down one from like 7 to 5. So all that has also been done. And those were all the things achieved within that 60 day action plan. The 60 day action plan actually reduces those barriers that Yes, yeah, so all the things I've mentioned are all okay. detailed in that. Are all the things we, and what we try to do is create an accountability system in the sense that we understand that people are very cynical about government generally. So what we try to do more specifically is say, you know what, this is what we're committing to do. Midterm, so like at the medium of society in February, I March 21, we issued another. That information was always in infographics, so people could relate quickly to it. At the 21st mark, day mark, we put out a March 21st mark. We said, this is all we've done. Look at it. This award is still pending. At every 21, we issued out saying, this is all we've done. This was what was pending. I think we scored 70%. So not everything we wanted to do, we, we couldn't do everything. So like, for instance, it was just yesterday that the credit bureau, for, for getting credit, the bills were passed, the credit reporting. Those were some things we were working on. The credit reporting um, bill and the um, collateral registry bill were both um, passed and signed. So those are some things we're trying to push in that time period also. But then it's not everything was done, but we're honest about it. Because the idea is, is to have a transparent system of saying, you know what, this is what we're committing to do. This is what we've done in that period of time. Now, after that time period, a great part of what has also happened is trying to get some serious, deepening those reforms and getting the people issues resolved. So things like the executive order that was issued by the acting president and all the details. Are, and I, I think I've shared some of those documentation around. Three strong pillars of it or four strong pillars of it. The first is about the issue of the default approval. The idea that going 
Um, or let me first start with the what's probably the best background, the transparency, which we've actually also been doing before with just 31 specific business MDAs. But now we're, we're broadening it down to every MDA in Nigeria. The idea of transparency that in your website you must publish a complete list of all the fees, the timelines, the procedure for any service you provide to the public on your website. I shouldn't have to call my friend to ask him what requirements I should be on the website. And it also pasted in your premises. And when there's a divergence between that, what is on your website takes precedence. And so based on that, what we also said was a second thing called default approval, meaning in that timeline you've committed to the public that you would deliver services. Does that cut across every civil service? Every federal MDA today. What is MDA? Ministry departments and agencies. Every okay. federal ministry department and agencies. Um, right. So it means that if I go to um, a vehicle licensing office and they said that I need to bring four documents to... to it should be on their website. It should be on their website. And if it's on their website, they, they cannot tell me something different. Yeah, exactly. They can't tell you anything. This kind of conversation I had with you off camera, which is there is a culture, and I think a lot of people agree with this, that there is a culture in the civil service that doesn't look like they're serving you, that you have to almost beg the civil service or somebody who works for the government to do what they were supposed to do. And then you're saying this now. How does that culture change? How does what you've written in the executive order change that? So first things first is... The acting president is not a man for fluff, right? So one of the things that has been tied into all this conversation is actually, in fact, I was coming now from actually a workshop where we had all directors, assistant directors and deputy directors of all federal MDAs in a room. And we're just taking time to the executive step by step and what it means for them. So there's a clear training and the acting president had one with all the head of agencies. We've had another one with permanent secretaries and CEOs of parastatals. So... The idea is to trickle it down gradually. And we was supposed to have one with, with civil service between a kid of 10 to, I think, 8 to 15 or something. So there's a clear detail. And we're working on the acting, the acting secretary of government federation and the head of service. But, but that's top down yeah, to yeah. me. No, no, not really top down because we're meeting eight, like eight is as low as it gets. So we're, you know. No, I'm, what I'm thinking, isn't there a place for actually having a culture? I don't know how to describe it well, but you know, when you have a big company that wants to change their culture and therefore them to be nimble and fast, they normally, maybe sometimes maybe acquire a startup or get somebody who will come in and be the cultural champion to say, this is the value. This is how we should be doing things now. And don't you think that is necessary in the governance, and especially in the civil service to say, this is how you don't allow people to wait on the line and we're on the phone to your friend talking while a lot of people are just there because you are their boss and you feel like you're their boss. And then you change that culture over time with these cultural champions. So I'll say two things, right? And I'll say them, I'll tell a story and then I'll say something. And well, let me say what I want to say first. The acting president, Professor Osiba, just says something very clearly, which I love. He says, we've got to get over the fact that Nigeria is not different. Nigeria is not special. We tend to feel like we're such a special country that the same rules don't apply to us. A great number of times, why some things strive in Nigeria is what they call lack of consequence management. There is no consequence for your action. You know you can get away with it, so you do it. That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think we underestimate the power of the civil service, right? And I'll tell you a story. This document you'll have in your hand, the infographic document. We sent it to the head of service. So we needed it the next day at 9 a.m. We sent it to the head of service 8 p.m. that day. By the next morning, over 5,000 copies of these copy documents were printed and stapled and bound and ready. That is how fast civil service can be when it wants to be. And you'll be surprised how many educated people, there are civil servants that have double PhDs. So let's not overly generalize and act like these guys don't all know what they're doing. But this, this is the issue. The issue a number of times is being able to put clear responsibilities for people. But beyond even clear responsibilities, also being able to monitor the work they should do. And beyond that also is the whole role of having consequence. And so yeah, if you read all the executive order, you say there's a clear consequence for everything. It's a gross misconduct. You don't do this. And everything has a team. One thing you find out generally is, 
When you push people to responsibility, they start to realize what they don't need and what they need. So, for instance, this is what approval says that whatever you publish in your website that you must do, you will do. If you tell me you will provide this service in this period of time, by the end of that time period, you must have provided it. If you don't, if I don't get it, it is deemed as an approval. So, if I apply for a license, you say I'm going to give it in 21 days, and 21 days you don't respond to me, is deemed as an approval. And I can apply to your minister for him to give me that approval document. Now, what that does is you're only giving teeth to because I've applied to the NGS, they didn't respond to me. So, I'm applying to the supervising minister and asking for a license. And then it also counts as gross misconduct where you wouldn't do the work. So the thing is, there's a number of those teeth system, and what we're trying to do now is operationalize that in get them to understand what these things mean. Because if you're going to give a man work to do, you must say he must understand in the clearest of terms what it is you're asking him to do. So, and a number of those things are not. It's not a five session mini session. It's spending time with them, understanding what their concerns are. But beyond that, also is detailing what the requirements are. What you will find out over time is. And a great number of what this executive order is doing is moving the burden from the citizens to the government. Government has a response. So and now the executive order is very interesting is one government principle, meaning that going forward, a document that this government has in its custody, I should not have to privacy to prove it. So for instance, if I say I've registered a company, all I have to do is give you my IRC number for the copy of my document. You should go verify whether it's a real company or not. Because in my mind as a citizen, it is one government. I shouldn't have to care of whether it's a CAC or an FIRS. For me, it's one. And so they generally... But, but that's more to do with a lot of back-end interoperability yes, between ex- the government. Exactly. And, so and you're not for them to do exactly. that. Because so even in the UK, very advanced civil service and very advanced government in terms of operation, there is a lot of disjointed uh, department but, not but even talking is, to each other. I agree, but the area is moving where the burden lies, right? And that and that ties back to what you're saying. In a sense, does and I feel that there's a massive disconnect sometimes between people realizing what really is the government. That's a strong conversation, right? And the government in the strongest of terms in the end is the civil service. Because truth of the matter is ministerial appointees will go and come, right? The guys that are always there with all the institutional memory in the end is civil service. But beyond that, it's even this. If you take a ministry, for instance, let's say a minister comes and heads a ministry. He probably comes with some of his special assistants. Max 10, 20 of them. Which don't matter is, compared to the entire gamut of civil servants in that ministry, because when you say with the, with the government, you're talking of that ministry in that regard, right? The minister and all his, with the political elites, are just a very small fraction of that entire ministry. But then, when you speak to that same civil servant who is the director in that ministry, you ask him, and he says, our oh, government has not done this. But the question is, you are that government because you're the one who has to do that license. As an individual, when I, as a civil servant, stops a documentation from going through, what I do to a great extent is I, I stagnate the economy because a business that needs a license to grow can't use the business license. The interest rate rises on it, and so they probably will fold up, and the people they will have employed in the economy don't get employed. So it's a ripple effect. And so it's helping them realize that the role they play in, in ensuring that the Nigerian environment is an easier, nibbler um, business environment mm-hmm. is a role, is, is some of what their personalization is. So for instance, one of the things that we've asked them to do now is SN, and we're working, we're working through all of them, service level agreements of saying, this is a service I'm saying I'm going to deliver to, to the people, and this is how I'll get it done. This is what I'll put on my website. So just working through them, because truth is, it's not for a lack of skilled people it's for lack of not having a system over this time where we have monitored what needs to be which starts from which starts from the government the government has to set the tone and what is the government and the vision. Think, no no no, I'm, no no i understand your your argument about who is the government yeah. we are the government but there is the elected government who set the vision yeah and, and the vision and the tone and also the pace for doing that which is one of the things you're doing exactly and, and, right and and, and and don't don't forget that the acting president is hands on about this in okay. the sense that we, the council, and I should say that the council, the Enabling Business Environment Council is made up of 10 ministers. The, the acting president is the chair. The vice chair is the Minister of Industry and Investment. The CBN governor is the head of services there. Acting SGF is there. There's a representative from National Assembly. There's a representative from Lagos and Kano. So like it's everybody, a private sector is represented in the room. And the idea is this council meets every month. 
But beyond that is the secretary has daily meetings with all the MDAs, like daily, twice a week with every MDA. So it's not a it's not a pie in the sky. It's systemic working through to get to where we want to be. And because all these things I've said for me is, and I was, as I was telling you before, I care about three major things, right? One of the first part of what I care about is is the whole work along ensuring that we're a competitive economy, like using trade and investment more specifically to ensure that a, any country can take off, right? Yeah. Using, but the second part of it is more specifically tech startup work, supporting what tech startups can do, and and then the third part is transactions. But the thing is, what you find out is a great number of all these things we're saying is just even ensuring that when we get to the point where we want to start exporting ourselves to our goods, that we've got competitive enough industries. Because truth is, yeah, we say we have cheap labor costs, but truth is, if it's expensive for me to take my business off, it's expensive, if licenses make it impossible for me to even take off, no matter the investment policy or the trade, trade policy you do, there's no one that will plug into all those access to markets that you're trying to forge. And so that is one of the great part of what these of doing business. He's saying, listen, SMEs we care a lot about. It's communicating clearly, SMEs we care about you, but listen, civil servants, um, government, will commit and not make itself an adversary to business, but make itself a partner to ensuring that business can thrive and take off. So let's pick up on the ease of doing business, especially for tech startup entrepreneurs. Uh, because uh, you mentioned the other time, places like uh, Mauritius and um, uh, Delaware uh, has been known as a place where you can easily set up a startup. They have a very good program that will enable startups to register and be tax efficient from day one. Um, is there anything you're doing or that your department or your, your team is doing to help in that regard with, with this executive order? All right. So um, so I'll, I'll speak very clearly. And, and I think a great part of it is what I already detailed out. The reforms within the Corporate Affairs Commission, uh, more specifically about ensuring that any tech startup in any part of one can actually register the company from start to finish online within 24 hours. Uh, and to operationalize that and show our commitment to the fact that it's now hosted on the main one server so that it's about 99% uptime at every time you can and that's one the second bit of it is more specifically our work around around what they call the smart digital policy in sense and, and the Ministry of Industry Investment is doing a lot of work about that but there is a strong recognition of the fact that the future is in services right it's it's greatly beyond and agriculture is amazing but the truth is the future lies a lot in businesses that can leverage on the global space. And one of our strongest strengths as Nigeria is, as our, is our people in the sense that we're talking about 180 million people, about 53.6% of them, if I'm correct, is actually within the, it's called the young people, right? So the idea is that there's such a nimble force and there's such a young, agile population strength compared to most countries. And so a great part of that work is after we wound down all the work of making it easier for you to do business, which we're committed to in the short term, in the medium term, and in the long term, we're doing plans every day. And some of the things we're beginning to launch now, something called trading within Nigeria, where we're just focusing on even inter-Nigerian trade. So things like the problems you face in getting your goods around in Nigeria, just trading in Nigeria, so the police, the customs, checkpoints, you know, just for business people. Just So that's just some of the things. If I we put out a survey already about last week, just getting people to validate so say, tell us what's your biggest challenge in trading within Nigeria so that we, we can target our intervention. Let's pick up on that before, before you go on. Okay. Yeah, because that, that actually, um, again, is very, very key. So one of the uh, one of my guests in this show uh, is um, uh, Tayo Bamiduro, who runs Max.ng in Lagos, uh, which is a hyper-local logistic platform that enables you to take goods from one part of Lagos to another uh, so you can order within an hour. And one of the things he said was the challenge they faced at the beginning was so much license payment that their riders have to pay and go through moving goods 
uh, in Lagos. And I used to run a startup that is like that in the UK. There's no point that I have to think about the barrier of transporting uh, stuff from one part of Bristol to another when I was leading, when I was running that. And he had to deal with that. So what you're talking about now, um, I know we talked a lot about the ease of doing business and registration online. What are you going to do with regards to the, the police, the, the area boys that made it very, very difficult for people to actually tra- transport yeah. goods and services? And let me jump in and clarify, right? That it's even bigger than just the police and the area boys. There's the work of customs, there's the work of NAFTA, there's work okay. of the standard. So there's a great gamut of people who affect, who, who have a strong impact on trading within Nigeria. We're at the early stages where we recognize that's a problem. We're scoping what that involves. Because the truth of the matter is what you find out generally is that sometimes problems are incipient. It's, it's bigger than what it looks, like, or look, looks like on the surface, right? And so, so what we're doing now is, and, and I encourage everybody here to, to get the survey and feed on it, but the idea is just to even get the data. What's the data saying? In the sense that we're doing strong analytics behind it, just trying to understand the problem in itself. Because um, it's not a new problem in the sense that it's a problem we're aware of. But the question is, what's the new nature of that problem in the sense that why is it so difficult to trade even within Nigeria? Because we're one country, it's not even another country now. We're just talking within Nigeria, getting my goods from just Lagos to Kano. So you're just looking at the problem now. No, no. So it's not it's, it's not really looking is not the word. It's called scoping the problem. You're scoping the yeah. problem. So you're not you're not coming with any solutions yet. No, we have we've got, we've got a number of things in our kitty of, okay. of what we think are the answers or, or what are the response. But what you find out is that you must be careful not to mix up causation and symptom. Right? Because that happens a lot when you're trying to do interventions because the cause of something is not always the symptom of something. And so a good amount of time, what you want to do is you want to see where the data leads first before you start. And don't forget, it's a federal state. You could issue directives. You could act sanctions to them. And and but what, what I found out about the most is a monetary mechan- mechanism. So one of the things we wrote out this month also is the ACATO, where we were trying to build an app. And the purpose of that app is basic. The purpose of that app is to allow you port and monitor government reforms on ease of doing business. Mm-hmm. And what that does for you is this. It helps... It pretty much outsources monitoring because what the idea here is that no matter how strong the team wants to be, the team can be everywhere in Nigeria at a time. But what it does for you is it helps you um, monitor and outsource all the, the reforms going on. So wherever in the country you are, you can easily say, you know what, I will face this checkpoint today. There's a checkpoint on this place. And it allows us target interventions because the truth of the matter is it's easier to target interventions when there's a lot of it. So for instance, imagine at the back of the analytics of it, we say on Monday there were 350 people that reported that there's a checkpoint on this on a, on a road or something. It's easy to then discuss with because there's a complaint unit for the police, a number of things. It's easy to then call the IG and say, there's a checkpoint here. Why? You can, so it's a data-driven intervention. It's not just pie in the sky. It's not because the truth is you've, you've got to be very deliberate about your interventions. You can't just throw your, you know, Paul will say, I'm not the man that fights like I'm punching the air. You must be very deliberate in your, in your intervention. And that's so, what we're trying to do is ensure that the intervention is data-driven. Interventions are very specific. And so, and when the hub goes up, I invite people to participate, you know, because truth is what we will find out generally with all the reforms is that except people are trying out the system. And the truth is some of these systems will have teething issues because for, for instance, there's internet penetration issues, there's adoption of technology. There are a number of issues we'll have at, at the early stage of teething issues. But what you find out is technology, you know, trying technology at this is not even the answer every time because if you, true technology has a very complicated problem, it really gets more complicated. So the idea generally is simplify the issue, find out the root cause and then deploy technology where necessary. But a great part of it is also getting private sector feedback, um, entrepreneurial feedback, just getting you to say, you know what, I, this is the problem I'm facing. And we try to, we're active on social media, Twitter, Instagram. And one of the things we try to do a number of times is when people flag, flag up complaints, either with their entry, visa and arrival issues, we don't treat those issues as a one-off issue. We treat it systemically. So if you tell me, oh, my brother has got problems with his passports, or my brother has got problems with the visa and arrival, or I try to register, we don't say, 
we don't say, okay, CSE treats this issue. The question is, CSE, why is this an issue? Do you get my point? And so we treat the systemic problem that comes with it. Yeah, yeah okay. Let me pick you up on that communication. Are you communicating this enough? And what are the channels and ways in which you're communicating that to the citizens to know everything you're just talking about now? Because a lot of people will be listening to you and say, wow, these are good things that you're talking about. How do we know? How do, we, how do you empower the citizens to know about what to do and how to go about it? And also how to question at the process. So, so, so I'll tell you that we're very committed to communication in the sense that we actually have a clear communication team with a communication lead that just drives that communication process, right? And that's one of the reasons why you're all head of ease of doing business. And that's my point. My point is, one of the things we're trying to do is communicate through several mediums. So we've got, we're active on Twitter. You should, at Ibiza Nigeria, we're very active on Twitter. I also, when people tag me on Twitter on any of the show, I try to respond to it and all, but we actually have a very active social media on, on Twitter, um, Instagram, Facebook. But beyond even that is one of the things we also try to do is we've got a website. And we were on TV a lot. And the idea is to push the MDAs. The idea is that if there's no country in the world where there's a, there is a system for enforcing this thing. The MDAs, the ministries themselves, and the department and NGS have to come to leadership. So what we do a number of times is push them to leadership on this issue. We help them with their reforms. We push them. To so we get them to also be on TV to do jingles where necessary. We're on radio a lot. We're, and and we, we've got the fact, we've got a clear communication plan. We've done a number of um, newspaper editorials and all that. We've done short videos things that have been done. It's, it's So there were a number of things we're doing. Um, just putting the information out there. We're on TV a lot. They spelled Dr. Chimaki what is on TV a lot. Channels, AIT, TV, whatever it is, we're on TV a lot. I'm pushing the message pushing as the much message. as possible. Because the truth is, possible. for us is this, and, we, and this is where we stand for. We, the idea is, no matter the reforms you do, if people don't know of it, you could as well not have done it. Because the truth is, if I say that now you can register a company from start to finish online, and you don't use it, you could as well just have put it down. So the idea is, for us, it's a big deal. And in fact, the more people climb on the platform, the more you test run that pro platform. Because there are times when, when everybody comes on, the platform will probably crash because it wasn't planned for that. And then it's a good problem because, yes, we, because for us, it's not just a quick fix. It's a sustainable fix. So the idea is, yes, okay, it happened. You said that. Okay, now this, this thing crashed. Why did it crash? And that's, for instance, one reason why we collocated the server. And then we also meet to associations. So the MBA, section of business of the MBA for lawyers. We do a lot of work also with, with Koren, with, so, um, which is the engineers. So architects. So we do it. So there's also that professional bodies clusters that we reach out to a lot, uh, and and all that. And, and in fact, one of the back reasons for doing an hackathon, as again, just outsourcing and hub, was to get young techie community also involved in that conversation generally. So so it's 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 not a new thing. It's a it's by the way we think communication is important. Definitely priority. We have a communications lead who takes lead on that. But beyond that, also is that we are always on everywhere. And that's why you notice all our documentation is actually infographics. We don't just write dense prose. We I, we've never actually put out any dense prose. It's always infographics so that you can pick. It up and in a quick span, you can understand all there is to it. You can understand what what it's asking you to do, how, how to try out the process and all that. Yeah. Okay, that's that's very good. I've got one of few questions to ask before we hand this uh, recording part of the uh, show. Um, and this particular question is about one of the biggest concern and one of the biggest barrier for doing business in Nigeria. From my own data has less to do with some of this bureaucratic thing. Maybe because people have, are used to the bureaucratic logjam of doing business or registering and stuff. I think one of the biggest challenges is funding, if you ask most entrepreneurs, is access to finance. I know that might not sit in the remit of what you're doing, but how does ease of business um, address that? So, so I'd say one of the things, one of our indicators that reform areas are working on is called getting credits, which is what you just talked about. And that's one of the reasons why the collateral registry bill was. One of the things it's supposed to do is allow you use your movable assets to actually get credit from the banks, right? Because, because the truth is, one of the reasons why it's hard to get loans is because 
of um, what they call um, follow-up. Like, I can't, how do I ensure you pay the loan? If you don't pay the loan in advantage, how do I follow up with you? So, a great chunk of gov- uh, bank costs is actually recovery. Trying to recover their loans and all that. So, the more data, the more credit history you have, and that's one of the things that does. It creates a debt credit history for you. One of, a, lot, a lot of what that does for you is it allows, it ensures that you're more attractive for loans generally. But let me also jump in and say this, right? That what you find out with reality is, is that sometimes loans are not even the issue. And I use the tech startup space where I've played in for a bit and even transactions. What I find out generally is that if you prove the numbers, the business numbers, usually money will come because there are a number of people who have a lot of funds that want to invest when necessary. But beyond that also is the fact that, so there's a very popular saying that I believe strongly that when you get too much cash starting a startup, what happens is that you stop looking for the most efficient means to add new customers. Because it's not about adding customers. I could say I'm selling this product and I'm even going to give you money if you take my product. Of course, I'll get a lot of customers, but that's not the most efficient way to get new customers. And I can speak for several tech startups that I've done legal work for, where all I did in the end was they got some major grants somewhere and then they said we're not doing it again, they started fighting and then all I did was have to, uh, all we had to do was structure out to dissolve the company and everybody goes away with the money. That's not an efficient use of money. So truth is, is, so money always isn't the problem. A number of times it's been, and I can name several tax that I know, Tutoria, a number of them who didn't have as much funds, Form Plus, who didn't have as much funds when they started up. But the idea was being able to bootstrap where necessary, being able to um, test the idea in the most scalable fashion. So the idea is keep scaling, bootstrap, keep scaling. So yes, I agree that funding might be an issue. And I'll tell you where I think funding is an issue. It's not even in loans, particularly as much as the interest rate. Interest rate is rather high. And one of the things the government is trying to do about that is trying to borrow outside the system because government lending sets the benchmark. If government lending rate is high, of course, the subprime lending rate will be high. But that's all different questions. But I'm saying, but generally, a bigger issue isn't even really in the funding particularly. You must be careful to ensure that it's not just that business tries or is alive. It's that the business is competitive. And that's something I wish I talked about more. The whole issue of the more work we're doing with the Office of Trade Negotiation and the whole work, work we're doing about just ensuring that we can actually start to strengthen Nigeria's trade and market access for goods and services of, of Nigerian um, origin. So, and for us to play in that field, we must be competitive. So we're having one of the issues with rice now. Yes, we're producing rice already, but the thing is, our local rice is more expensive than foreign rice. And I agree, a great number of them is because foreign governments subsidize their rice farmers. But the truth is, even beyond that is that we must get to a point where our rice production or even all our goods production services, so for instance, if you, you're you doing a tech startup, whatever it is, that it is competitive in the long term against a global competitor. The more that we, we want you to start to export your services and your goods, the more you will be able to play in the global space. But how you do that is making it easy for me as a startup founder to get access to finance or making the resources cheaper for me. Because one of the biggest challenge as well is that the resources that they need, I mean, the, the infrastructure that they need to run the business is too expensive. But I don't, I don't quite agree. And I'll say it, and I'll say it in the clearest of terms, right? And I've lived in Nigeria and I've lived abroad, right? The truth of it is, labor cost in Nigeria is one of the cheapest in the world. No, no, I'm, not I'm, just labor. No, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to touch on each of them. Labor yeah. cost in Nigeria is one of the cheapest in the world. So that is that, right? A tech outfit that I do, do something about, I'm advisor to just move some of their services from a Polish company. Polish programmer to a Nigerian programmer. And even with the Nigerian program, which is actually very expensive for them in the sense of what it is, still, it's just one third of what the Polish programmer is going to ask for. Right? So that's one. Power. And we all shout power, power. But the truth of the matter is, when you compare utility bills abroad to utility bills in Nigeria, the truth of the matter is, utility bills in Nigeria are actually cheaper. Take any, the power bills of, of utility bills of those that live abroad, their, their power bills, is actually a lot higher than what we pay for power here in Nigeria. But of course, there's an issue of reliability of power and all that, which are a different conversation. But my issue is this. That what you find a number of times is that, and most top businessmen will tell you that, they'll tell you that the real issue a number of times is that the idea itself, the monetization of the business itself, is 
income stream must be sustainable in the long term. It's a problem most entrepreneurs fall into where no. I've got such a great span of idea. And because I've got a great span of idea, I'm not going through the feasibility numbers. I'm not going through what the structures are. Because truth of matter is, even within that numbers, even within the economy space, whatever the high cost and low cost is, you must figure out a way to ensure your monetization works. No, no, you're talking about unit economics here. But, but that's not, I, I think I would disagree with you that the cost of doing business in Nigeria is not that expensive no, not compared that expensive. To, 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 saying, to the, to the, to, to abroad. I'm not, uh, I'm not saying it's not that expensive. I'm saying but, we have a number of, Components that are way cheaper here. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what like labor, but exactly. infrastructure is still more expensive. Yeah, different, but the question is like, like the electricity is the biggest one, yeah, but and, and the access to the internet. The iron business, both in the UK and Nigeria, and I can tell you that it is very expensive, especially with regards to data for the internet, which you pay a lot and you get crappy. Um, stuff. That's number one. Number two, electricity well, 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 is just hard. Data for the internet. Now, apart from fiber optic, which China, which of course we've got to deep in and all. The question is, to a great extent, the number of that is is already is prioritized. The government doesn't supply electricity. They have internet to you. Yes. So, yes. So let's, so let's face that. No, no. The, the, the issue is not about talking about the government. It's not about or oh, the government is doing something wrong. And uh, we're not stoning the government no, no, here. No, I'm just we're just saying that one of the biggest challenge to to the ease of doing business in Nigeria is some of those logistics, some of those bureaucratic um, logjam that you're solving, which is the responsibility of the government, fine. We also talk about the finance, which sometimes it's not even the government having to give you the finance, but just creating a framework that makes it easy for you to have access to finance. But the other issue is about infrastructure, which is expensive for a lot of... So, for example, here yesterday, I mean, where we're doing this podcast, they've been on generator for for hours and it's costing them a lot of money to do that now you may say okay it's cheaper per unit compared to the uk but in the uk it's just it's expensive so so i might mean, I mean, agree and i wouldn't go into the past of the reform work okay because that's that is a longer conversation it's an issue of what the cost whether the cost of the tariff issue and all that that which is a different conversation and there's a reform on that or not that, that, that's mr power's work and i i consciously will not talk about it for i'm not clear i'm not the official spokesperson on that issue but the issue is this which is where i'm coming from my issue is i agree with you that the number of infrastructure are high but i also say a number of them are offset by the fact that a number of our, of our facilities are really low that's why i'm starting with i'm saying i'm not saying this isn't high i'm saying the offsets is because actually yourself, for instance is the number of foreign businesses still making massive investments remote in the Nigerian economy. Why? Because when time these guys balance out the upsides, it still works. That's yeah, of course. Right. Two is the fact that where I'm going to, two is the fact that if the business numbers make sense today, and I say this because I do a lot of work with young entrepreneurs and business people. A number of times the businesses don't make sense. We're not used to this idea about sourcing some parts. We want to do everything. I want to be the one. So for instance, I want to do a education service. I want the one that gets lecturer. I want that. We want to control every, but that's not really. Sometimes you just have to focus on your core of your business and outsource the rest of those that are going to do. So there's a number of those issues, for instance, and I won't mention names. There's a business person that wanted me to do, do some work with them in the past. And the raw materials of that industry, of what she's trying to do, that she didn't want, she didn't have to control. But she wanted to produce the clay, she wanted to produce this. Wanted, and truth of the matter is, that would ensure that you've got so much leakages in your business that it can't work. So the truth is, thinking through the monetization and thinking through the monetization and the structure itself. So yes, I agree totally that some things are expensive, but I'm saying that massive downsides on some parts that are cheap. Like there's a fact that there's even the social capital here in Nigeria. The fact that you can use your neighbor's house, you can use your um, your, your your neighbor's um, backyard. And talk You're to totally right. You know, so there's yeah. a number of downside here. Yeah. But beyond that is also the fact that a number of times the numbers don't even make sense. There's this excitement I get that I have an idea. But then is yes, it's one thing. Before Mark Zuckerberg was saying something funny, it's like, don't get tempted by that big idea. And he says that sometimes it's not even a big idea. It's about whether the idea is workable, feasible, the numbers make sense. And the truth is, it might be a 
a great idea. It might be a massive innovative tech business. In the end, it is a business. That's yes. my point. And so for a business to leverage up, the numbers have to make sense. Do you get my point? It's, it's got to be a, this component part, this component part, this component part, this component part would include this. I, had, I have a friend um, who runs an amazing tech startup, and this guy, a number of all his clients come from the US. But this guy just moved back to Nigeria recently. Like, he's moved in London for a while. He just moved. He said, well, you know what? I did all the numbers. It just made more sense to be in Nigeria for me. And that's the truth. Because truth is, when you put, and if your numbers make sense, and, and you show it, there are beyond even banks, the number of venture capitals that are giving out funding, the number of, and in fact, there's been a massive plunge of grants within Nigeria and Nigeria. The, the GEMS, the, um, the World Bank GEMS in consultation with Federal Reserve Industrial Children, we just give about 81 entrepreneurs, about 756 million cumulatively for grant from, um, grant recently. So, truth is, there's a lot of funds going around if your numbers make sense. Of course. And, and that's my point. My point yeah. is, I agree with that. And I, and I can also name several tech startups that have gotten serious grants, but have blown through all that cash in hours or days. And, and in fact, there are more of that than those who have actually done good with the money. So, I agree with you that yes, we can do more with access to finance. And I've seen some of them already is the whole part of the conversation. And infrastructure and as well. And definitely. And a great part of it is the work being done along the lines of the getting the bill on getting credit that allows you to use your mobile property for assets. But truly, I'm saying, even if those numbers were, were low down, the number of techs that will still get access to finance because their numbers don't make sense. And yes. That where, and that's where I'm... And to be honest, it's like that everywhere because that's the nature of startups. So when I first came to Nigeria uh, looking into... But, but I disagree. I don't think that's the nature of startups. No, that's the, no, no, that's so, the nature. No, no, there no, no, are failures built startup ecosystem. No, no, so, I agree. Right. But, but, and part of me is try and error. But there are failures that were that are systemic. There are failures that are um, this field we tried at it, environment didn't just work. And there are failures that were depictable from day one. Because if you just put the numbers and crunch it to a model, you know it wouldn't work. And yeah. what I mean I say by that is this, and I say this as someone who is a stakeholder in the tech space in Nigeria, mm. for instance. As of today, we're not committing as much time and effort to the whole issues of our business development, product development, and our legals. It what in fact, right, and even talent. We're running quickly short of talent. People yeah. realize that talents have become ridiculously expensive. So there are a number of tech and, and we can that, talk a lot about that yeah. because of the education system exactly. as well. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there are a number of tech companies I'll tell you today that local tech companies I'll tell you it's so expensive to pay for tech talent because from foreign guys going to pay for what they are, and there's not enough pipeline pipeline yeah, yeah. of talent. Yeah. But beyond that, also is that even those that take which will link back to the government yeah, as well yeah, with regards to education yeah. anyway. But even those that take off, right? Even those that take off, and I'm, at this point I'm talking more on my own yeah. personal opinion. Yeah. Even those that take off, a number of them don't have a clear business product plan system. So on that airport. so it's just a techie starts a business. The business the business angle of it isn't strong. Mm. The business the product angle of it isn't strong. The legals of it isn't strong. And so what happens is if some will take off accidentally in the end, or some will take off well, but truth is it's going to blow up in the face eventually. Some yes. Some years from now, when you realize, oh, I signed some agreement I should have signed. I diverse some shit I shouldn't have divested. Yes. I raised some crown of funny and lost a lot of rights I shouldn't have yes. So my point is, in the end, we've got to realize it's a business, right? And if it's a business, and truth, if most businesses include in itself all those downside and upsides in its calculation, in your modeling of, okay, will this work? Because some business working on client will not work in that client. So there's all that conversation. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I agree with you on that. And what I'm saying is that actually that we could be discussing this in London and it still holds true to a lot of startup because the initial startup is basically people just have, a, have an idea, let me test it. And most of them will fail because sometimes the number doesn't add up. But you need to give room for people to actually and, experiment. And failure is sometimes a good thing. Failure yes. Sometimes a good yes. Thing, right? But but for me, I think the long term is also just ensuring that we've got stronger market access issues. So some of the work we're doing with trade and investment. And if you were to see the work program for the Nigerian um, Trade Investment Office, um, Nigerian Office for Trade Negotiation, what's happened is it's a focus on the 21st century economy. Focus on not a, a, an economy where 
we can plug into the global value chains where we know where our strongest suites are and we can plug in there. We don't have to produce everything in the country. There are things where it's a comparative strength. Where should we deepen our efforts in? And that's where, and I make a joke about it, we also have to realize that in the end, we're not a socialist state. So a great part of what government should do, and I agree with you, is in frameworks and ensuring there's a good environment. But then there's a place for private sector to leverage on those environments. So we got to stop looking at for, to government for funding for this thing. Or government needs to give us. That's not the, That's not what government's role is. Government's role is to ensure there's a framework and then it's, it's our work. And, and reduce any barriers. And reduce barriers, reduce obstacles. And the private sector and even citizens have to then take center stage in building ideas with better policies rolling out and all that. What has to happen is that you've got to plug into those policies with proactive and then start to build an industry from ground up where private sector has a clear role, government has a clear role. But beyond that also is that we're a competitive 21st century modern economy yeah. that does good work, that delivers competitive service and is plugged into the global economy. So la- our last question is... Um, how do you see this play out in the future? Um, I mean, the future is big. It's too far for, for you as a, as a government person. The future is two years. <laughs> the future is two years, right? So what are your visions? What do you see happening next two years with, on this roadmap that you're on right now with the ease of doing business? Uh, what are the key things that we should be expecting? So more definitely, the three tiers of what ease of doing business should look like in the next phase is one, deepening the reform. So... First is just, because what I've said is the normal bit is just pushing the ministries and department and agencies to work. So pushing them to take response, be that response. The idea is not for the agreement to do any of this work. It's just get them to the work they should do. A lot of also is reforms along people issues. Just getting people, the civil service to understand the ownership of how much rests on their shoulders. The second part of it is the whole issue of subnationals, getting states to become more competent among themselves. So the idea of, and there's a ranking next year, 2018, where it's just about Ease of doing business in more situated within the states. So beyond just the federal work now, like different states and even creating almost competitive index among the states. Um, and, and the third part of it, like I've said before, is the trading within the Nigeria index where we're getting, where we're focused more on making it easier for Nigerians to do more business. Well, by background in international trade and as an international trade lawyer, what you find a great number of times is that we need to be able to retain the value chain within the country. So it's not enough to say we just exported the raw material and we imported back the finished goods. We must be able to retain the value chain within the country and so that what we send out of the country is a more finished goal. So there's a good part of ensuring that training with the enjoy is good. Beyond that also is the second part of what, of just deepening, being more strategic with our trade relations, our trade alliances and our trade interactions, ensuring that we have more deliberate interactions, a lot more, forge more strategic alliances with specific trading partners and ensuring that it's a symbiotic relationship. So, so that even as our business environment gets better, there is a ready access to market for our product and ourselves, and there's no discrimination against our exporters all over the world. And I think the, the bigger spare for it is also ensuring that we actually become a stronger service economy than uh, just goods and services, but a stronger service economy, a competitive global economy. And that work transcends an administration. One thing I like is that everybody owns this that company. Everybody talks about it regularly. Everybody cares about it regularly. And that's the good part of it. In the fact that it's, it's not just a government saying, it's about the fact that people own that conversation. Your feedback as private sector is the most important. Because you're the ones that know where the shoe pinches the most. It stares where the intervention should be most focused on. It stares where more increased effort should be put on. It stares what, what resources should be devoted and where. And what is the best fit solution in some of these cases. Because it's not enough to just do something. It must be a best fit solution. A sustainable, um, long-term solution that is owned by not and people got to hold their government accountable because if you try out the service and it doesn't work flag it up the end of the secretary is not it's not in the whole sense of oh we got bashed it's a that's good this thing works how do we get it better it's good and that's the point how do we get it working and running and so that's more or less the, the future the future is in Nigeria where 
citizens owe their part. Citizens understand their role and care about their role. And the private sector realizes that in any economy, the country only takes off when the private sector agrees and devotes its resources to ensuring it takes off. And a government's role really isn't in throwing around money, but really in creating frameworks. So what about you? What are your plans for the next year? Keep your fingers what, crossed. What should, we be looking, <laughs> what should we be looking at for? for well, well, definitely, like I said, I've said it over and over. Do you still want to stay in government for a long, long time? So, like, like, the honest truth is, government is a massive sacrifice in the sense that you've got to be responsible to it, the obligations you have. So, you, it, it's a cramp on some of the things you can say, the cramp on some of the businesses you can posture and all that, which is great um, in the sense that, well, you're, it's, it's service to the country. But the short matter is that... The future is, is pretty amorphous. I look forward to serving my country. I enjoy serving my country, right? But like I said, for me, it's where the best platform is to do three things, which is one, help create a 21st century competitive economy where our policies can help, our policies on trade and investment can help developing countries take off. The second part is more specific on the issues of transaction support. And the last part is around the issue of just helping create stronger um, technical support around the legal issues for tech startups generally. So those are three things I care a lot about. And for me, it's always looking for where the best fit is to get that done. So it's not as much a where, and the truth is there's always going to be an avenue, right? I I've, I just showed you, I played around the private sector international law space, I'm now in government. I'm not in public service, I don't know, right? But the fact is, it's not really what the title looks like, it's not really where the gamut it is. Where is the next best space where you can get that kind of work done consistently? <laughs> You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T-H-E-S-T-A-R-T-A.com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.